this is what sweet timing. My sister just sent a text saying she's really enjoying our podcast. Oh. It's nice to hear us laugh. That's what she said. That's so. nice. That's really nice. We need more feedback like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to know because sometimes it's like, you know, we're usually laughing at the tangents, but it's like when we're editing, it's a tangent. I'm like, all right, this can go. <laughs> but then we, we lose us laughing. Don't so I ever guess if lose people. Us laughing. I try to keep us like on topic. So yeah, I got to keep the. Gotta always keep the laughter in there. If if you don't get our laughter, how are people go, how are the audience gonna know to laugh? You know, yeah, it's like the laugh track. Gotta have us in there going. Dah, 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 yeah. Like, okay, that was a joke. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier, a gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Well, hello again, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. Uh, the Gauntlet is a weekly podcast in which one of us selects a topic and the other two bring movies to the table for all of us to discuss. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me, as always, is... Ryan Saunders. And... Eric Marsh. Now, I was up this week. It was my turn to pick. You know, I felt like we'd been doing a lot of really dark stuff lately. We've had a lot of weeks in a row here where it was murder and bad romance and revolution and strife. So I figured we needed to lighten things up a little bit to, to brighten the mood around here. So my pick was for classic... Hollywood musicals. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of also went there just because, you know, I was a weird theater kid. I, I grew up on musicals. I love musicals. I really, really enjoy them. And I was so thrilled with both of your choices, particularly your choice, Ryan, because secretly in the back of my mind, I, I sort of like it popped in there. and I was like, oh, I hope somebody picks that. So why don't you tell us what you brought to the table. Of course. Well, at first I was looking at a Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin film, Hollywood or Bust, but I think it was raising red flags in my head about whether it fully constituted itself as a musical because it only had four full musical numbers and like a half one. And I didn't want to go at war with the prompt. So I thought, okay, like this is a, t a territory I'm not super familiar with. So let me, you know, dive in and let let's just see what we got. And um, I'm actually going to be going to. Deadwood in a couple of weeks I'll be passing through South Dakota so I thought oh how fun how about we take a dive into uh, the Hollywood musical version of Deadwood with Calamity Jane So Calamity Jane is a 1953 film directed by David Butler. I've never seen a David Butler film before either. And it's with the lovely Doris Day. And um, I, it's funny, I was actually, again, just like my gap in musical knowledge for Hollywood films. I've The only other Doris Day film I've seen is The, the Hitchcock, The Man Who Knew 
too much with Jimmy Stewart. So I had like never heard her sing, I don't think. I mean, her, her voice was familiar, but I was, I found it to be extremely beautiful. What a voice I mean, that this Doris Day has. She's probably a bigger <laughs> singer than an actor. I, that's what I sort of gathered. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, you know, there were songs I had heard before. Que sera, sera. Exactly. Yeah. But um, no, yeah, that was like the, just the first immediate reaction while watching. So the film starts with Calamity Jane riding in on the Deadwood stage, you know, singing a jovial tune, getting ready to meet everyone in the old dusty town. She's got her buckskins on. She's hopping about. She's having a great time whacking her whip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Deadwood stage! The Deadwood stage! The Deadwood stage! Oh, the Deadwood stage is rolling on over the plains. With the curtains flapping and the driver slapping the reins. A beautiful sky, a wonderful day. Whip crack away, whip crack away, whip crack away. Oh, the Deadwood stage is heading on over the hills. Where the engine arrows are thicker than porcupine quills. Dangerous land, no time to delay. So she arrives at the Golden Garter, which is like a saloon-type hangout place, and there's been a big show advertised, and all the men, they can't wait. Finally, here comes a beautiful woman, you know, to enter onto the stage at Deadwood. But then when Calamity's in the crowd, she, amongst all the other men in the audience, start to realize there's something off about this performer, and it looks like the owner of the saloon accidentally booked a male actor of the name of Francis that he had confused for for a woman's name. And Francis appears on stage in drag, and though he does seem to convince a couple male members of the audience, Calamity immediately spots it out and sees something's a bit bit different here. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, she takes it upon herself to sort of, you know, provide entertainment for the crowd and sort of make sure things don't get out of hand. And she says she's going to go to Chicago and go and track down Adelaide Adams, who is sort of a figure of fascination amongst all the men who collect little cigarette um, photographs, hoping hoping they'll get Adelaide. And when she goes to Chicago to get Adelaide, she brings someone else back on accident. It ends up being one of Adelaide's assistants in, in the, back, the backstage assistant uh, because Adelaide has gone to go tour Europe. She's, she's done as a performer. But Calamity doesn't realize this. And, you know, what follows is... Um, a comedy spoke. of errors. Yeah, but what follows is a comedy of errors, you could say, you know, as the crowd first rejects this new woman she's bringing in, but then sort of embrace her. But then it also sort of evolves where Calamity develops a domestic life with this woman. And Calamity Jane is sort of a film about a closeted lesbian who decides to make up for that fact by kind of flouting her genocidal impulses. That's sort of how I read the film. Um, she... It's been a long time since I've seen, and I watch a lot of Westerns, it's been a long time since I've seen a film that is just so open in its disdain for, like, the indigenous people of America and just wanting to steamroll them as if that was just, like, a subject of, like, charming conversation. So that was, like, an interesting, like, shock while watching the film, especially when it seemingly has, like, or at least some buried progressive queer subtext to it. Um, but we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more. But, yeah, that is... That is what I would call Calamity Jane. (laughs) Excellent. Now, Marsh, what did you bring? You brought a very interesting film that I had never seen before. Yeah, well, I think Ryan sort of brought up a good point there. I think the theme for the week is 
progressivism alongside regressivism. And that's the classic Hollywood way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I picked uh, a film I also had never seen, and this is a film that Ryan had brought up when we were sort of talking over the topic off mic as a film that was on Rosenbaum's, you know, alternate American cinema canon. And that film is Stormy Weather from 1943. Stormy Weather was produced by 20th Century Fox and directed by Andrew Stone, and it is notable for being an all-black musical. And so it is loosely based on the life and times of its star, dancer, or hoofer, if you will, Bill Bojangles Robinson in his last film appearance. But the film isn't just a biopic of Bojangles, but it's a sort of combination backstage musical biopic and sort of musical review of, you know, the sort of contemporary landscape of, of black music in America. And so, yeah, it's like, uh, I found it to be a, a very fascinating film, and especially it's often talked about in conversation with the MGM film, Cabin in the Sky, directed by Vincent Minnelli, which also starred Lena Horne. And so that came a little bit earlier, and that's a little more like kind of like religious and a kind of a little more regressive in its sort of like representation of African Americans, whereas Stormy Weather is very contemporary uh, and very present in its fashion and in its music. Um, and so one thing I noticed that sort of piqued my interest was we've talked, you know, we talked earlier in the pod about Orca being a response film to Jaws. And what I discovered about both of these films is that they are both response films. And they're both responses to specifically MGM musicals produced by the Freed Unit, the gold standard of classic Hollywood musicals. So in the case of Stormy Weather, it was made in the wake of Cabin in the Sky. And in the case, of course, of Calamity Jane, it was in the wake of Annie Get Your Gun. Both films star Howard Keel as well. So there's, yeah, there's like, it's, it's very interesting to me that, yeah, both films came about trying to combat the MGM hegemony of the musical in the 1940s. I would also, a thing that I found very interesting in watching Stormy Weather would add to your list of, you know, what this film is that makes it unique and of its time. It's also a sort of veiled propaganda piece. Absolutely. Being made in the middle of World War II. And there's, of course, you know, several moments where the U.S. military is directly addressed if the piece isn't itself indirectly. Also, you know, a, a sort of celebration of, of America, of its diversity and stuff like that. So Yeah, we get that from the very beginning with Jim Europe's 15th Infantry Band. You know, yeah, a real band, by the way, who toured Europe to great acclaim and success and found that they were better received in Europe than they were in America. So the, the 15th Infantry, I don't know if you both know this, they were uh, the 15th National Guard of New York. They were also known as the 369th Infantry Regiment, and they had a very famous nickname that you two might have heard of, the Harlem Hellfighters. They were yeah. an all-black unit that was you know, put together um, as World War I was raging, and they were actually attached not to the U.S. Army, but they were attached to the French Army. They were under French command because there was a big issue with white soldiers and white officers who didn't want to serve next to them. So they ended up attaching this American infantry regiment to the French. They actually carried French equipment in World War I, and they were 
the heaviest combat unit, or certainly one of the heaviest, but but they're often you know known. This is like a really big thing about them. They were the they were in the front lines longer than any other American unit. They were in the front lines in World War One for 191 straight days without a break. They were one of the most decorated units of World War One. They never gave a foot of ground, and only two of their soldiers were ever captured, and they were both recovered by the Harlem Hellfighters. They had many, many awards, many medals, a lot of croix de guerre were given out by the French. The French loved them. I mean, they were a very proud unit, but not in the United States, not recognized certainly by white ass racist America. It's a really telling, you know, point that they they open with that band and and the fact that it's the unit, the the Harlem Hellfighters. Yeah, and like I know even specifically, right, like this film and Cabin in the Sky were released under that sort of like, you know, World War II sort of heightened the racial divide in this country, right? Especially with a lot of African-Americans serving and contributing to the war effort. And so as like civil rights was intensifying, it's like a second cycle of black musicals starts coming out of Hollywood. And it's very much a product of, yeah, the FDR kind of period and ideology, right? So it's, you know, it's full of these contradictions, but ultimately, yeah, it's a like any good musical, it is a utopian vision. However compromised that utopian vision is by, you know, being produced, directed by white people. And there's certainly some compromised moments in the film, which we can get into. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Well, it has to be a utopia if you want the audience to leave and buy some war bonds on their way out. I mean, this was made under the auspices of the Office of War Information's Motion Picture Bureau, as almost all films were during World War II. And, you know, the doctrine of Elmer Davis, who ran the Office of War Information during World War II, famously stated that in their, you know, vision of propaganda and how to propagandize to the United States of America and to the American public, they said that, you know, it was far more effective to insert and inject ideas into people's minds through an entertainment picture when they didn't realize they were being propagandized. Some of the most effective films on the home front were not war films. They were musicals they were comedies you know stuff like this it was going my way that they found were far more effective to mobilize the public yeah and in particular too like related to that you know it's again it's a very interesting time in like american media because with radio and with cinema like white america had a connection with black music stronger than they ever had before because of these popular mediums so the film itself is full of you know the sort of like first generation or generation and a half of black multimedia stars singers dancers actors, radio people, like they did it all. So there was a familiarity, you know, in the 1940s with like larger audiences. And again, there's the growing sort of American like media complex, right? We should probably talk about some of who those those other yeah. famous, oh, yeah, I, meant to I do mean, that. the cavalcade of stars right. in this, which I was just like getting such a kick out of. Even people that I, I, you know, I'd never heard of, but then I'm watching them and I'm going, oh my God, that's amazing. For example, uh, with one, they have a dance sequence 
Brothers, the Nicholas Brothers, oh, yeah. who do that unbelievable uh, dance sequence on the stairs. Yeah, it was um, Fred Astaire had said that that was the best sequence, the dance sequence he had ever seen in a film, in a musical. Um, and I mean, it's it, blew, it blew me away. It, it was really insane. Is yeah, there's like a lot of connections of the of the people in the film to like the Cotton Club or Harlem scene. But yeah, the film is a cavalcade of just amazing performers, right? So you have Lena Horne and Bill Robinson sort of at the core of the film, but you also get performances by Fats Waller and Ada Brown and Cab Calloway and his orchestra doing uh, doing extra time in this movie. And then even in addition to that you also get like a full set piece that is danced and choreographed by Catherine Dunham, who is one of like the pioneers of black dance in the 20th century, who later like set up schools to teach people uh, how to dance and sort of left this really like amazing legacy. And so overall, yeah, it is a set like an 80 minute movie and there's like 20 songs so again to give you an idea of what this movie's like i mean it is almost entirely music there is this kind of loose romantic plot throughout the movie Very where loose. yeah it's yeah. extremely loose and and yeah obviously that's no problem for a musical right it's just like yeah sort of linking these scenes together and it's also the film structure sort of takes the there's like a frame story as well where the film opens with Bill Robinson, you know, having had this successful life as an entertainer. And he's talking to all these neighborhood kids and he's like flipping through this sort of like dedications to him, this little like uh, magazine. And he's yeah, like- Yeah, it said, it said like it was some sort of like retrospective celebrating 25 years of colored entertainers contributions to like America or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, and then it's like takes us through his life is sort of the excuse to like do all these musical numbers. And so it starts coming home from World War One. He goes to New Orleans. He goes back to New York City and reunites with people. He falls in with another theater group that he becomes a part of and is like dancing for unhappily. Uh, and that's also part of the love triangle with Chick Bailey, this other like promoter and dancer who's sort of his romantic rival throughout the film. We see him get his own show against all odds. And then at the end, we see, yeah, that big celebration of him at the end when they perform the big number. It is interesting because um, now that even you're saying it like that, you know, like that framing story, the magazine, the, the film ends up turning out to be sort of a a retrospective of like the the growth the evolution the changes of 25 years of like the black experience in entertainment in America in a way that reminded me a lot of a film that came much much later that I think is very clearly inspired by this uh Robert Townsend's The Five Heartbeats which is a very similar framing story it opens with him sort of looking and it's this Esquire magazine and like remember all the the great groups, you know, the, the, the four tops, the temptations, the five heartbeats. And he's sort of like, oh, yeah, I was a part of this. Yeah. And then it goes back and it goes into like the 40s and then, you know, or the, the 50s and the 60s and their experience, like in all those groups, you know. And again, uh, uh, like the sort of this is like the first half of the 20th century in a nutshell. And the five heartbeats is kind of like the second half, right? right? The post-war. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering about that magazine because weren't there also like personalized inscriptions to him too from like all of his old friends? That's why I was curious is like, was this like a thing that was available to the public or was it specifically designed <laughs> for one him? one of one designed for Bill Robinson. Yeah, yeah, I was curious. <laughs> yeah, because like he gets that, there's like this, there's actually a guy who's, 
uh, Chick Bailey, who who kind of tries to sabotage his career early on, like doesn't want him in, doesn't want Chick Bailey's this, you know, singer, uh, you know. And he's got designs on Lena Horne as well, as everyone does in this film. Yes. Uh, And because he senses an attraction between, you know, Bill and and, uh, Lena's character, Selena, he sort of is trying to keep this guy, you know, to the side. He's trying to make sure he doesn't actually, like, join the group. And then there's a really hilarious scene where he literally uh bill robinson literally upstages this guy chick bailey chick bailey's seeing a number and and he's just cast bill robinson in a sort of just a a throwaway role in their like dancing troupe and he's just like drummer number seven or something like that and bill's fed up with basically you know being sort of pushed off to the side so he gets up while chick bailey is singing and he starts tap dancing behind him on all these these tom-tom drums What's he doing? He's facing to Tyrus Shorp and Billions out of employment again. And look at Chick, he thinks he's wow. And Chick Bailey has no idea what's going on. The crowd just going nuts for the dancing, for Bill Robinson's dancing. And then he fires. Chick Bailey fires Bill Robinson. He's so upset when he realizes what happens. But then the inscription in the in the book is Chick Bailey saying, "Congrats, yeah, Bill Robinson, you. to the man who gave you your first shot, or whatever." You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a really like clever, yeah. you know, kind of like Hollywood gossip kind of like shit. You know, I loved it. It was great. And that's like a particularly like you know crazy music number because it is this sort of like you know stereotypical like African fantasy kind of like musical number where everyone's got like tribal shit on. Yeah, they're like, they've got like paint, like of bones on their chests. Yeah. And like to, again, to connect it back to sort of like, you know, the recent history of music. uh, I read that the music that like he's performing in that scene is from Emperor Jones, which was famously performed by Paul Robeson. And so even in that, which is like kind of, they're kind of like making fun of it in a way. Well, depends on who, you know, maybe the director doesn't think that, but there's like a parodic element to it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think him literally tapping, tap dancing on top of all of those drums is him like inverting the entire set piece. You know, it's taking away whatever emotional effect the idea of that kind of thing was for an audience. But yeah, I mean, you have to think about like the white Hollywood audience that's watching it. But also, yeah, I think him like dancing on it is him just like kind of destroying the like casual normal version of that song and then like turning it into its own unique performance. Yeah, he's reclaiming it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's, again, why that audience goes nuts for it. Like they're they clearly get it. You know, Chick Bailey gets some sort of tepid applause. But then when, you know, Bill Robinson stands up in the background after having literally tap danced across all these tom tom drums, the crowd goes wild for it. Yeah, I think in in that sense there there. Yeah, there's like an element again. And I don't know how much I'm projecting, but like there is an element where it does feel that like, yeah, this film is obviously like consistent with 
Hollywood portrayals, you know, of African Americans. It doesn't like deviate from that too much, right? There's a lot of stereotyping and caricature work in here, but there's a lot of moments where I feel like it sort of transcends that or sort of flips it on its head. I mean, it even has like <laughs> the scene where, and this is a non-musical scene, but there's like a, a sort of like minstrel routine that's done by these two guys in the middle of one of their shows. And they They're do like Amos and Andy. Yes, like. They, it's like an Amos and Andy style routine and they do black blackface. And like, it really does, as much as obviously that was like an actual thing, but it also like does feel subversive in a way because like they're amazing performers and their riffing is like very creative and very funny. Uh, and you It is a hilarious set piece. Like, yeah, like I mean, the jalopy falling apart. And again, yeah. it's all built, yes, on this sort of like negative stereotype, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like there is like a humor and a lightness to it. I mean, that's something that when I was doing research after watching it, like I had come across some things that, you know, Bill Robinson had had said in, you know, reflecting upon his career and, you know, of people sort of, you know, saying those things. Well, what about the blackface stuff? What about the the minstrel aspect? And, and you know, it, it seemed very much that Bill was also trying to explain, like, look, there was this big desire for us to get more mainstream play you know for us to to elevate black performers and you know it shouldn't be our fault that we were sort of being pushed into a system that made certain demands on us of you know what white audiences expected of us in that you know this really sort of difficult position to be put in well especially he would yeah like we were we were like shocked to learn that he's like like 60 years old in the movie and he was born in the 1870s and just again like reflecting on how much different his life was say from like lena horns right this guy's born in 1878 he's performing in like the early 1900s like imagine yeah i mean and we see his journey right from world war one on but again it's like imagine what it was like for for bill robinson to tour and i mean he is like considered like one of the greatest tap dancer of all time, if not like, you know, top three, top four, along with Kelly and Astaire. Uh, yeah, easy. I, I read know. that, yeah, both Gregory Hines, who we've already mentioned, and Sammy Davis Jr. said that they learned everything from, from Bill Robinson. Like he was the guy that inspired them to do what they did. Yeah. And I look, I don't I don't want to pretend to be a dance expert, but I was like trying to like, yeah, be like, what did like, well, you know, what were his sort of like innovations? And I read that he sort of brought tap onto its toes into a more like limber and sort of athletic kind of thing. Instead of just like standing back and tapping, it was much more like, yeah, dynamic. Yeah. And I, I don't know if either, either of you have, have heard, you know, one of Sammy Davis Jr.'s most famous songs is Mr. Bojangles, which is a sort of ode to Bill Robinson. It's just really beautiful heartbreaking sort of civil rights song and it's it's incredibly moving and it shows now for me after having seen bill robinson and now finding out more about him and of course you know how influential he was to people like sammy davis and and gregory hines like it's it's that much more powerful now to to think about that song and what it meant for sammy davis to to present that you know to sing that as a, as a tribute to his mentor really are you familiar with the other very unfortunate tribute to bill robinson uh, from fred astaire there's yeah, a it's in swing time oh he does blackface right? yeah yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He, yeah it's like the most fucked up 30s shit where he does blackface in honor of bill robinson yeah, yeah. and he does like a bill robinson inspired 
tap. Yes. And he does it with the shadow of Bill Robinson like projected behind him. So he's tapping. He's like showing you that I did not create this dance. Like I am going after one of the greats here. But, I actually um, have seen that. Yeah. yeah. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Astaire, you know, not, not the smoothest guy off of the dance floor, we can say. Yeah, no, no. Not at the vanguard of progressivism in Hollywood. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah, so uh, again, you know, it's like, how do you describe this movie? There's just a shitload of songs, and I want to, like, highlight a couple of the bangers, uh, as it were. I mean, so there's, like, a sequence. Well, first of all, just speaking of tapping, right? Because, like, the first couple numbers are more, like, formal. They're in this kind of, like, dance hall setting. And it's really just, like, Bill and uh, Lena Horne sort of, like, falling for each other and dancing, you know, with GIs and stuff like that. But then when he's traveling down to New Orleans, he's on the boat and he hears guys like playing like jazzy type music on the boat. What's that? Must be them traveling minstrel boys got on at New Orleans. <laughs> Boy, have you seen Slim Brown? She's finest gal in town, turns all Memphis upside down. Yeah, man, yeah, man. She's dark eyed, thick screen. Boy, she got it, she got it mean. Strongest gal I ever seen. Yeah, man, yeah, man. Now you should see her when she gets going. Remind you of the Mississippi Florida. Where are you, dog? Thank you, boys. It's hot enough. Yes, those boys hot enough. Well, come on, boys. Let's play the stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I'll do a skip up the gold. You can't do no skip up the gold. Yes, I can't do a skip up the gold. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And then there's like some sort of like offensive, but like also awesome like beatboxing that these guys are doing. They're doing like weird vocal tricks. Like a guy does like a trumpet solo, but like with his mouth uh, and shit like that. I can take a cars too. You can take, take no cars too. Yes, I can take a cars too. And then we really like see for the first time, like, and I think this is like one of his classic routines, right? And so he gets like the, the sawdust or flour out, and then he, yeah, starts. You know. He throws like sand, yeah. He yeah. throws sand down, yeah. And then he does this very like stylish number where he's dragging his toe oh, around the, the dock. And to quickly bring up a rhyme with Calamity Jane, there's also the bit where she takes the salt off the counter at the at the bar and sprinkles it on the floor so she can do a similar effect. That's right. I think that's her only like tap bit in the film too, and it's very like yeah, very pointed. And she you know gets it on the ground. I loved that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. If you didn't have proper tap shoes, you know, you had to have something kind of create that nice little shuffle noise. So yeah. sand, salt, something grainy. You gotta spread it down. You know. Yeah, and so he gets down to New Orleans, and he's working, Bill Robinson is working on Beale Street uh, as a dancer, but when we meet him, he's being a waiter with, like, a very funny sort of, you know, classic Hollywood joke where he says, Hello, Selena. Gee, I'm glad to see you. What are you doing down here? Dancing. 
But on account of the bartender being sick, the cook had to take the bartender's place, the waiter took the cook's place, and I had to take the waiter's place. <laughs> then we're introduced to, yeah, just the sort of like New Orleans world of music, and it's Fats Waller and Ada Brown playing That Ain't Right with this sort of like great call and response. Baby, baby, what is the matter with you? Ain't nothing wrong with me, babes, nothing at all. Baby, baby, what is the matter with you? One never knows, do one. <laughs> These, like, amazing close-ups of Fats with his, like, derby, his little mustache, just, like, hammering uh, that piano and being very, like, cheeky. He's so, like... Just charismatic in that close-up. Oh, I always told you you'd be the death of me. And when I'm always with you, I get the third degree that ain't right. Ah, tell these fools anything but tell me the truth. Oh, that ain't right at all. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? Uh, I love that shit. And then right right after that, he performs Ain't Misbehavin' as Lena Horne and uh, Chick Bailey come in, the sort of entourage. They're putting together this new show, and so they're like, we gotta wow them, and so they bring us on tour, and that's what they do. No one to talk with all by myself No one to walk with but I'm happy on the shelf misbehaving saving my love for you for you for you for you and then they you know that's when lena also you know first doesn't realize that it's it's bill who's you know her waiter right and at first she kind of gives him the brush off like he's just a waiter and he's sort of like oh you know really like damn i she, she thinks i'm chopped liver or whatever and then she recognizes him later and then says, you have to come along as well, right? And so she ends up bringing him back to also join their their troop, regardless of what that asshole chick wants, you know? <laughs> but you know, I mean, you're, you're, you, you bring up an excellent point though, Marsh, as you've been kind of like going through these, which is also just that there's a really interesting geographic yes. sort of, you know, variety to this film that they're jumping around to some very iconic locations for black performers and black entertainment in the United States of America. That this film, as much as it is, as we've said, this sort of, you know, loose biopic of Bill Robinson. I mean, I think really in these sequences and seeing all these performers come together in these various geographic locations, you get that rich tapestry and to me it was a fascinating experience to watch this film to be introduced to so much of this that it it informs as much as it does entertain really mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting watching like a greatest hits compilation of artists basically like or an era you know like here's like a film that's just summarizing some of the great talent that we've had for however many years um yeah it, i because i can't really think of any other film that's not just like a straight documentary that is really sort of engaging in that mode so that was certainly well and this unique. is too because there weren't black actors in hollywood and so like mm -hmm. the black actors that were used in hollywood 
were crossover stars. And that stuck for many years up to, you know, Harry Belafonte, people like that, where it's like, oh, he's a singer, like, can he act? It's never like, I'm just a black actor in the 30s or 40s. Like, that doesn't exist uh, in the context of the studio system. So yeah, like, it, and, and of course, they had to top Cabin in the Sky, which had Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. So there's also that, you know? But again, like, this, yeah, this, like, wartime cycle, it's so fascinating because guess what? You know, we looked at a film 10 years uh, after this, which is like the most like Eisenhower white bread, casually racist kind of like happy-go-lucky post-war America musical. And then 10 years before, we've got the all-black musical. Where'd that go? I think also there's, there's a point of it, you know, again, that's very interesting to me in that you know, clearly being signed off on by the Office of War Information and all the the military stuff. I mean, it's bookended not just by him reading this magazine, but it's bookended by the military. You know, them returning from World War One and and very you know particularly choosing the Harlem Hellfighters and that conflict because these soldiers who went and fought in World War One really expected that they were going to come back to a hero's welcome. And while they did have a hero's welcome, you know, in the grand scheme of American identity, like the the Harlem Hellfighters were all but forgotten. And certainly by the time that like World War II comes around, you know, this picture is also, again, trying to say, hey, we're all in this together, all Americans, you know, and that that sequence at the ending was just so interesting to me because of, you know, how overt some of the, the more propagandistic elements were of when like, Cab Calloway introduces his son being like, this is my son. He's going to fight. Yeah. in the war right now. So you're going over, huh? Yes, sir. And I hope to be with him soon. Oh, I envy your dad. I wish I had a boy like you. And so do I. You know, like, <laughs> they, and it, you know, it's again, it's still this like call to arms and a yeah. call to arms for black Americans, but also for white Americans to recognize the contributions of, you know, black Americans in the American military. Well, speaking of that, you know, there's a connection because one of Bill Robinson in the movie, his buddy from the war, Gabe, is played by Julie Wilson, who is most famous for being in Casablanca. And there's an element in the film where like the presence of Julie Wilson being one of the more famous black actors at the time connects him to Humphrey Bogart. And so he is like a, a sort of like casting decision. Not only he's a great actor, but being like, remember the guy from Casablanca? He's your friend, right? Yes. We're all in this together. He was friends with Rick. Come see Stormy Weather, you know? And he plays like a very interesting sort of character too, because he's like this huckster yeah. uh, who again, talk about a guy who served in World War One, and, and he he's always like putting on airs and like borrowing his friend's limo, you know, his yeah. like chauffeur friend's car. Right passing it off as his own. He's the rich investor, you know? <laughs> like, when when Bill can't, like, pay the bills, he can't pay his performers, they come up with that scheme where he's like, I'll act like a rich investor and everyone will be impressed by me. Well, he ta yeah, he takes him off the street when he's shining shoes. So there's even, yeah, this, like, element of, like, it's, like, 15 years after after World War One, and Gabe's just shining shoes on the street, and then they use him to concoct this crazy plan because uh, Bill can't afford to pay his dancers and his singers for his, his production, but he knows if he just gets the production off, he'll have the money to do it. And so there's this whole lengthy comedic sequence where Dooley Wilson is pretending to be the investor. I, I actually really like the way that money is used in the film because it's never implied that money comes easy to 
essentially anyone in it. No, this movie's all about grinding. Exactly. And I think that that's like a pretty radical difference from like this type of either musicals or just this sort of thing where like it's implied that it'll all work out. And I guess in this it's implied it'll all work out just because of their fortitude and their cleverness of, you know, getting getting away with all of this. But yeah, no, there's certainly like in the subtext this idea that like, yeah, money is not as easily accessible to this demographic as like other American citizens. You know, something you notice in so many classic Hollywood musicals is that like regardless of the plot, there's often a subplot. Like the show, the show must go on. There's always a show that's somehow entangled or entwined into the plot. And that the characters, regardless of their, you know, romantic affairs and, you know, their their life struggles, it's also this idea about the show, the entertainment aspect and how it's so central to our experience as humans. It's a, almost a very sort of ontological expression, you know, that regardless of the tragedies we might encounter, the difficulties in our lives, like at the end of the day, if you could just get up and put the show on, like that's what matters most. Yeah, it know? is that like, everyone's finding meaning in this performance. And there's even that great bit where Bill Robinson's saying, oh, you should come like live with me in Hollywood. We can settle down and have this house. And Lena Horne says, no, like I want to be on the road. Like this is where I'm getting all of my like life energy from is for performing. And I don't want to just give up and settle down. That's not the life I have envisioned for myself. Which she later then changes her mind yeah. to end the Hollywood musical where she does, yeah, like get together with Bill. But at least we never see her like cooking or doing chores at home. You know, they spare us that embarrassment. Yeah. Like, and to your point, Andy, right, it's like, you know, musicals, the good musicals have that element of like the musical as a worldview. Right. And, and that, what you were sort of describing. And I found a quote from uh, the historian Michael Wood, who said the musical that says what it has to say in music as distinct from a movie that has music in it. And again, it's like, you know, whatever, you can define a musical however you want. But like a good musical, right, says what it has to say in the music. And I think for me, that's where like Stormy Weather just fucking nails it because like the songs are so good. Like the performances are amazing. And I do want to shout out as well, again, the Cab Calloway Zoot Suit, which I learned, you know, who was a big fan of Stormy Weather, Malcolm X in his Detroit days and he took you know he used to wear zoot suits of course but he was he's on the record saying like the one-two punch of Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather for him as like a teenager was very formative and like sort of inspired how he dressed and, yeah. th and things like that yeah. he went through that 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 period where he was you know and you see it so well in Spike Lee's Malcolm X, yeah. right, where he's going through the painful experience of straightening his hair. Yeah, and he's going, you know, they're going to the barbershop and they're getting that stuff put in and they're kind of suffering, but then they're they're walking down the street. There's that great sequence with him and uh, with, you know, Denzel and, and Spike Lee, and they're just so, so like, they're just bouncing down the street. They're doing the walk, they're swinging the arms. Like, it's really incredible. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's amazing. We're going way. Charleston to dig all Kijiju. Got a good old Kijiju. Can't do nothing else but go. And it's interesting, right, to think of the, the, the zoot suit like as this symbol, you know, the symbol yeah. of pride as it was that I think, yeah. you know, unfortunately became like a big joke when the cherry poppin' daddies and 
You know, there was that like sort of white white ass swing revival, you know, in yeah. like the 90s. And they just like fucking took all the soul right out of it. You know, they took all the life out of it. John like, Favreau, culpable. Yeah, yeah. It's just you know, a bunch of like really pasty, chubby white people now. Like, well, yeah, know? dude, like, that reminds me of a great moment in the movie that I really liked where at the end when everyone's sort of coming together for the Bill Robinson reunion and Cab Calloway is speaking jive in front of Bill and they're sort of like of like different generations. And so like Bill is like, the square one who's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, why, Tank Game? Well, if this ain't a solid cinder, what do you know, Pop? Give me some skin. Mella. Now, today you're racket, Jack. Say, this cat ain't hep to the jive. Stop beating up your chops to him. Now, ain't that a brain down? That's the wrong riff, Jack. Say, what the devil are you two fools talking about? We're talking jive. He says he's glad to see you and he wants to shake your hand. Solid. Righteous. Crazy. But again, right, it's that, it's that. <laughs> That that again that like kind of cross section that 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 evolution of like the black experience not just in like music but also in like fashion and culture from the very beginning of the film to like now the mid forties and you know that big sequence at the end where you have a bunch of zoot suits and yeah and people like dancing the whole gang of zoot right suits, there's that yeah. cute little like family that comes across the stage like a yeah. husband and wife and then like descending height of like children and they're all wearing zoot suits I mean it's it's really incredible. My, my, ain't that something? Jimmy shout. Mm-mm, ain't that something? Ain't that something to shout about? Yeah, that was really exciting. I don't know if this was actually what happened, but it was sort of how I read it, at least in the moment of watching it. But I thought that those were the children from the frame narrative invading the past <laughs> and then crossing the stage as if it was this big showstopper where everyone from the film was here on stage. I don't know if that was actually any of the same kids, but that's at least the emotional effect it had on me while watching it. And I was just like cheering along. I wanted a zoot suit so bad when I was growing up. Yeah. My dad was like, we can get you a zoot suit if you want a zoot suit. And that's when he introduced me to Edward James Olmos' zoot suit, which we were talking about a little bit before the we started recording. But, like, I went through a phase where I just, I wanted a zoot suit so bad I never What got color one. zoot suit did you want? Oh, probably red. Like, sure. I wanted something flashy. You mm -hmm. know, I was a flashy little kid. Yeah, um, I could see you in red or green, but primarily red. kind of town very funny Chicago gag in stormy weather I mean Chicago is very prevalent in Calamity Jane as well but I like the gag in stormy weather do you remember where he, s he says like hey how do you feel about coming to Chicago to, to be in a show and he's like Bill how soon can you leave for Chicago I'm on the outskirts of Peoria right now. <laughs> Dude, yeah, I lost it at, at that moment. Speaking of, uh, like, cities, do you guys remember the part where right before, like, Bill's show is about to begin and, like, Mae Johnson sings, like, I, I lost my sugar in Salt Lake City? Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City haunts me. Oh, that city taunts me. Night and day I find Salt Lake City on my mind. Oh, I love yeah, totally. What is going on here? I was wondering if there was like 
an explanation? You know, yeah, like a move. Like to, I was like, was there at any point like a sizable population of Black Americans like making their way from Louisiana to Salt Lake City? I mean, Salt Lake City is one of the whitest goddamn cities. Yeah. Right. That's why I was so confused. It's also a great lyric, you know, because yeah, you got the sugar well, and the salt, really nice, you know, yeah. and everybody. Yeah, Salt Lake City well, sucks. I dig. You know? Yeah, I dig the performance. But and, you know, yeah. in like that older <laughs> era of American music too, there there used to be just so many more like city songs yeah songs you know? about towns yeah songs about know? cities and towns i mean chicago obviously new york kansas city i think that's the first salt lake city i've heard in a song i mean fucking dean martin even had an anthem to houston in houston houston Right, yeah, I mean, there's just so much. What happened to all the city songs, you know? No one's shouting out great cities as much anymore, you know? There haven't been that many new cities, so maybe they feel like they've sung about all the ones they thought were worth having a song for. <laughs> we got to invent some new cities then. Yeah, yeah make I'm some... I'm a ding-dong <laughs> daddy from Duma. Yeah. That's the last good, like, town song I learned. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking of songs about towns, there are some, some songs about towns towns in our other film from this week calamity jane from yeah. the get-go i can't believe i've never heard chicago described as chicago um she keeps saying like oh back in chicago and i'm like "Ooh, that's kind of nice i think no I'll, it's not you don't like that oh, i like I hate that. it oh i could see myself referring to it as chicago no uh, just i hate the, the full hollywood folksy dialogue of this movie it, dro- it drove me oh, half insane it's insufferable <laughs> but i just like kind of like the way chicago sounds oh. well, <laughs> i was gonna say it. if you're gonna do that do at least do the potawatomi pronunciation right like oh yeah well Calamity clearly isn't really concerned about, <laughs> you know, respecting uh, indigenous culture no, in the United not States at all. of America. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's like historically accurate, at least insofar as that, like, she did scout for Custer. I don't know if that's just like the fictional backstory or not. Well, but. one of the things about the film that I think they do playfully really get, you know, correct is that Calamity Jane was like a, a known liar. Like she, there's so much about her life that's like disputed, right? Yeah, she right. Told I mean, so even her tales. relationship with Wild Bill is entirely disputed that they were friends at all. And and yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, this film covers that because her character is often getting caught telling tales, exaggerating her kill count of you know mm, the, yeah. the Indians who are attacking the stage, you know, and and even beyond that, like her ability to. Even just, you know, swing Adelaide Adams into Deadwood, right? She's constantly getting caught in these lies. So I think the film is playfully addressing that, that Calamity Jane isn't, you know, the, the, the icon that you might think, you know? Well, and the film sort of, yeah, takes the angle that those lies are connected to her sort of like like gender sort of issues with herself, right? Where she's like over-exaggerating the role of of the man, you know, to, again, fit into this like historically tough milieu. It's not that tough in this movie, of course. But yeah, so she's like overcompensating, right, for her, you know, in this male-dominated town. Uh, Calamity Jane, a big-ass liar. Big-ass liar. A dirty liar. Well, we were, we were also talking about, like, her genocidal rage that she talks up throughout much of the film. There was that crazy moment where she was, like, almost like a self-aware colonizer where she's, like, looking at the Black Hills. Got to wear that old army coat. Old coat? It was Custer's bill. Give it to me yourself. 
If it's good enough for Custer, it ought to be good enough for Fort Scully. This ain't no scouting expedition against Sith and Bull. We're going to a ball. I know it. We sure got a night for it, ain't we, Bill? Yeah. Don't it thrill you just to look at them hills? Sure does. No wonder the engines fight so fierce to hang on to this country. And it's oh like, yeah, That was an definitely. incredible moment. That yeah. was like the yeah. only moment of self-awareness in the film at all. Even in that moment of self-awareness, then, it's completely drowned out in this weird, like, almost elegiac kind of, like, nostalgia for the the, the genocide of, like, the Sioux, yeah. right? Because they're singing this then song about the Black Hills, and, like... Oh, I just want to go back to the Black Hills. Take me back to the Black Hills, the Black Hills of Dakota, to the beautiful Indian country that I love. Lost my heart in the Black Hills, the Black Hills of Dakota. Where the pines are so high that they kiss the sky above. And when I get that lonesome feeling, and I'm miles away from home, I hear the voice of the mystic mountains calling me back home. Every joins in including the fucking cavalry officer and they're all singing this like very you know like just sort of heart-rending ode to the black hills and the indian lands and you know they love it so even though there is that maybe self-awareness of like yeah this beautiful land i can see why i can see why they don't want to give it up then it's sort of like yeah but it's ours and don't you oh it's so wonderful and it's beautiful i love <laughs> yeah. being here and wish i could always just you know <laughs> Take it away again. Yeah, know? yeah. We can just do it all over again. Yeah, it really does feel like And that. very pointedly, Jane is wearing Custer's jacket mm -hmm. in that sequence. Because yeah, she has right. to like get dressed up and they're like, oh, where'd you get that? And you know, she's also throughout the film adorned in the, the fringe buckskins, which were a trademark of Custer's, right? Yes. But I think the buckskins is a very deliberate choice in that vein of connecting her to Custer and the cavalry scouts and that sort of thing. Yeah, and this is a big costume movie as well, of course, because Lots as it sort gags. of, yeah, and like it traces Kalam, as they call her, uh, her sort of progression and sort of like wanting to break out of this like masculine persona she's created. And that comes when, yeah, the singer from out of town comes in and she gets caught up in, uh, yeah, maybe uh, an almost... Uh, lesbian romance, but Hollywood wouldn't let it happen, you know? There, I mean, but there was just, like, no explanation for, like, it, how it could be anything. I mean, it could just be a really wonderful and beautiful close friendship, but there are just so many signifiers no. the yeah. whole time. I mean, the whole song, Until Secret Love. Yeah, but it even, I just, like, never even buy it. It's like the film seems so convinced otherwise that it almost presents you the ending kind of like a joke, you know? Well, too, I mean, it's important to, to I think, also take into account that, you know, throughout the history of, of Hollywood, particularly from this period, you know, the, the, the classic Hollywood, right? There's so many films that today have, have sort of been, I think, reclaimed or rediscovered, regardless of even perhaps the initial intent, maybe, of the, the filmmakers right but the 
the you know the idea of like queer coding and also for someone like me you know death of an author kind of shit like regardless of maybe even what the directors intended it's like we have what we see and what we experience on the screen and it, it did really interest me you know i saw this first when i was a kid my mom loved it you know we watched it and actually i should point out that uh, I went out to the Burbs and, and watched this with my mom. I rewatched it because my mom was the first one who showed me this film growing up. So I said, oh, mom, we're doing Calamity Jane. You want to watch? And we sat down and we watched it together. And she oh, had some lovely. very, very amusing comments. She didn't talk anything about the lesbian, uh, you know, queer coding, the perhaps. Love. She just kept saying, like, look at how tiny their waists are. <laughs> <laughs> she kept saying, remarking about that, you know, like, oh, my God, they're wearing fucking corsets, you know, like they're they're suffering for that waist, you know. Right. But but yeah. I mean, right. It's like it's what we have on the screen. And I was fascinated in doing a little bit more research into the film after the fact and in in learning that discovering that. I mean, like Doris Day is, is it's well established. I mean, she's a, a sort of queer icon, but that this film particularly was one now being this, you know, it's it's a, a, a championing film for for just that for perhaps lesbian love. But I don't think Calamity Jane is the only queer-coded character. I think there's also Frances Fryer, the actor you mentioned before, who is never seen with a woman in the film, right? Like, even when they're at the dance, he's not dancing with a woman, and he's this sort of, you know, he's not very masculine compared to all the other denizens of Deadwood. And then, of course, he has showed up with a costume bag that has woman's dress and makeup that he knows how to put on and all this stuff. He puts on like a really good drag show. Yes, and is he... It, is he it implied that that's his costume that he brought? It might have been gotten by like Millie, you know. Well, you know, regardless, like yeah. it fit him perfectly. Sure. You know, and he looked, you know, very at, at, at ease. And now he's nervous when he's about to perform and there's this really funny bit, you know, where he's like backstage and Miller, the guy who runs the Golden Garter, is trying to bring him out, you know, say, oh, we got this great actress from New York, you know, here she... And he's backstage going, like I can't I can't do it like I'm the, these guys are gonna kill me you know and I personally even read that in that same vein of this guy knows what'll happen if they find out you know like it's just a guy in drag or whatever I mean he's he's afraid for his life come on get out there oh I can't if I go on as a woman they'll murder me if you don't they'll murder you and me too now get out there I've got two wonderful arms. I've got two wonderful lips. I'm over 21 and I'm free. Oh, I've got a heart full of honey for the right kind of honeybee. But once he gets on stage and he starts performing, like he loses himself in it. And he's he's reveling in the role. I mean, he does a better opening performance than Katie Brown, the actress who comes in later and is doing Adelaide, yeah. right? Like, he's killing it until his wig gets pulled off by the trombone player. Yeah, because yeah, again, most of the men in the audience are convinced and just, like, loving the show. I love that song, too, Hive Full of Honey. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is very, the right like, kind of honeybee. Yeah, it's, you like, know? very burlesque. I was very, like, charmed by his performance in general. He was, like, a, yeah, a very, like, pleasant part of the film. If you're the one I adore, come on and get it before... Somebody shakes it down from the tree. 
I feel like we should describe at least like, you know, middle of the film musical set piece that sort of like creates this like lesbian utopia. Yeah. So Katie Brown, the actress uh, who's pretending to be Adelaide Adams and Calamity is not aware that this is not the real Adelaide, like brings her back. And then she has like bad face blindness in several scenes, including, yeah, when she like sees like a cigar store Indian and shrieks. Right. Oh, yeah. Too much sarsaparilla, you know? (laughs) That's got to be what it is. She's gone. She's gone. She's really blind. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That that rot gut. You know, that's really she's drinking. But yeah, right. So she brings her back, and then when it sort of revealed who she is, and Kalam kind of defends her and says, "Hey, like." She's still a beautiful woman. Like everyone's kind of revolting. And I should also point out in the, the previous bit with Francis Fryer, because like there's some really good bits there with this like mistaken identity. That bit with Francis Fryer when he's in drag and it's revealed. Uh, Miller, the proprietor, who I, I think is a great comedic actor in this film, he comes out on stage and I wrote down the line because it's great. He's trying to like calm down this, this crowd who wants to murder him. And he says, I may have been mistaken about his gender. But not his talent. <laughs> it's such a great bit. You know? It's oh. funny. I actually found the the Armand White um, write up of Calamity Jane, and he makes the craziest claim ever. I think I know what he meant poetically, but he says perhaps the first time the word gender was ever used in a Hollywood film, and I'm like, definitely not. But. I- I see what he means. But it did feel like very, even for me, it felt like sort of like, wow. Like It was you know, it was loaded in a different way, I think is what he was implying. It was like, yeah, I mean, I can't think of any other Hollywood film that has someone use the word gender with like all these other implications like buried in there in that same way. But right, I mean, in the context of what we've been discussing just now, like it, it, it adds that much more weight to it and mm-hmm. its usage because we have, you know, multiple instances in this film of sort of gender swapping, right? Of gender identity being questioned and played with in, in I think very interesting ways for what, 1952, 53? So again, regardless of the intentions there, I think like, or the, you know, initial sort of meaning or usage, like it's so loaded now, especially in the context of looking back. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really incredible example of what you were talking about, the death of the author and the way that, like, meaning shifts in it. Like, you can really make a case for, I mean, this particular film being, like, a prime example of art having its own life. And, like, it could, like... Uh, you could just just as time has passed and this film has continued to live as its own entity like whatever sort of intent and meaning that they had initially thought they were doing it's just like you can't take it out of this modern context that we're now experiencing it with and like you sort of have to read the film in this way it's like impossible to like entirely put your brain back in 1953 where maybe people weren't entirely second guessing so many of these gender reversals and female friendships absolutely and that builds again to to where marsh was was leading us right where Calamity then takes Katie Brown this actress when it's revealed she's not the real Adelaide and it's like well where's she gonna stay and she's calamity says she's gonna stay with me. She's gonna stay in my in my little. I got a little not cozy little cabin. And when Katie Brown sees the cabin, oh boy, it is as unkempt and <laughs> disheveled and rough and messy as calamity herself. And that leads to this really amazing sequence. Now people have said right that you know secret love, as you mentioned before, is like you know the gay anthem of the film. But I actually think a woman's touch, a, a woman's woman. touch yeah. is so loaded with that 
that subtext, right? Yeah, and I love this number too, right? Because it's like, yeah, the the ladies move in together, and Katie is taken aback, but very quickly is like, oh, all this, all this shack needs is a woman's touch. A woman's touch. A woman's touch. The magic of Aladdin couldn't do as much. She's a wizard, she's a champ, and she doesn't need a lamp. A woman's touch can weave a spell. The kind of hocus pocus that she does so well. With the magic of a broom, you can mesmerize a room. And then they sing a woman's touch while they're, yeah, sweeping and cleaning and like somehow producing uh, new, ob- you know, like new, <laughs> yeah, yeah. new consumer goods yeah. and objects that the they're getting. The door is replaced. There's windows, you know. Yeah, and then like this is very pointedly the scene where where Calamity is now like wearing pants and a plaid shirt, right? So she's sort of like becoming domesticated to to a certain extent. But I love this sequence because it is so like 1950s where it's like a like a pay-in to to cleaning and like consumer goods right it's like yeah on the one hand it's this almost explicit kind of like gay sort of number but then they're just like all you got to do is clean and all you got to do is get these new things and make your house have a a woman's touch uh, and then you'll be happy and they certainly are after that for a for a brief moment anyway yeah i was waiting for like cartoon birds to show up and start (laughs) fluttering around on their shoulders well there's almost that like almost like magical realist moment of like the dead flower that they they you know put water on then it's just sort of dissolves into yeah, just this beautiful little like rose windowsill garden. Yeah, I mean it's it's there's some really like extravagant things going on in that sequence. I mean the color shift alone. I mean especially yeah. in Technicolor, you yeah. know, going from this drab browned out cabin to this you know most colorful Disney esque picture of. Uh, female domesticity and very interestingly right after that number is the scene where uh bill and uh lieutenant dan lieutenant dan yeah, uh, lieutenant dan i kept thinking of that yeah like, yeah dan gilmartin uh they yeah d- they roll up to to the shack and, and calamity has just gone off to uh visit a sick prospector and so there's even this implication that like once she's sort of like been domesticated with katie that like she's like a better person like before she would be like clamoring for any reason to go shoot her gun off and specifically at native americans mm-hmm. and now she's like oh okay i've got this like beautiful house i'm gonna go help the sick prospector uh but then that's funny i actually hadn't like considered it that way but i think that makes sense just in terms of the narrative of the film because i just that was one of you know the facts i knew about calamity jane was she was like a quote-unquote humanitarian in the sense of like caring for the and like you know that whole sequence in Deadwood the TV show right. is true like she when there were epidemics of like smallpox and other diseases she was like a willing nurse who provided services for free she like very frequently took care of the sick but what you're saying I do think is true well, because there's I, no indication of that no, previously it's, yeah, it's in never the film. mentioned yeah. right so that's why I hadn't considered it but I agree I think that but she's also when she's doing that, she's not wearing pants and a flannel shirt. No, she puts a on a, a bright canary yellow dress to, to sort of go, you know? So even in that sense, you know, she's not just sort of like, if she's doing something very usual for her, business as usual, and I got to trek across all this stuff. I mean, she's now doing it adorned in 
you know, very feminine clothing. Mm-hmm. That she soon gets covered in mud when she falls in the creek. Right. Well, right. you know, you can take. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually really funny, though. I was confused by even just the simplest story elements in that scene when Lieutenant Dan and then Wild Bill go and talk to Katie and they like have this whole plan for the ball and this courtship, you know, and they don't want Clem to sort of interject until she then shows up. But then there was all that drama, right, which I now understand, but I remember watching and I leaned over to Molly and I was like, what is the issue here? Like, I'm confused. And she's like, well, it. she doesn't want to be with Bill because she loves Lieutenant Dan. I was like, What? She doesn't love Lieutenant Dan. I'm like, when do we get that? Well, like, at the very I, beginning. No, I know it is given to us, and I remember the sequence, but I be- I just did not believe it for one second, even a little bit, well, throughout sure. the entire film. That it con- And that's what I'm just talking about, the modern eyes. Like, I was never convinced by that to the point where I was confused by that simple of a plot point. That's, like, I think the unique energy that the film has. Well, and she has a very comedic, antagonistic relationship with Bill, which, again, in in an old Hollywood movie means, like, the tomboy, like, really likes this guy because she's talking shit to him. And so they have, you know, they're such good friends and they have this kind of rapport and it's kind of like banter. Yeah, they have that great song, I Can Do Without You, right? right? Which is, like, to your point, that that sort of Hollywood thing where you say, like, you know, I hate you means I love you, right? Yeah. And and that's very clearly established for them. And I would point out, I don't know if you noticed it, that's a beautiful sequence because it's production sound. They're singing. They're not overdubbed in that sequence, that whole number. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Are oh, you no good for a flushing? You talk too much. In the summer, you're the winter. In the finger, you're the splinter. In the banquet, you're the stew. Say, I could do without you. In the garden, you're the gopher. In the Levi's, you're the loafer. Like an overturned canoe. Well, I can do without you. you I was going to bring that up, too. I was, you know, just I'm not as much of a musical person, so I was curious if that is ex- that has to be like extremely rare right for a classic it's, hollywood yeah, music it's not it's, often it's not common i like i have no memory of ever seeing something like that where i was because I, I yeah i that also really stuck out to me and it was quite nice actually because both of their voices are incredible and it just hurt like them grunting and then getting farther away from the microphone just hearing that turning their backs exactly mm-hmm. it was like a really interesting way of hearing the song well right? it added a lot of presence because yeah. i don't know if you noticed this on that level just sort talking some of the technical aspects Doris Day is you know dubbed even in a lot of overdubbed in a lot of dialogue scenes like uh, uh, separate from the other performers I didn't who notice are that, yeah. doing production sound so it's really interesting that in this sequence they're they're going full production sound for the musical number right mm-hmm. but again I think you know both Doris Day and Howard Keel are you know legendary singers and legendary you know performers in live scenarios that for them it was probably even more comfortable to to be doing something like that, especially for Howard Keel. He did so much more theater and musical theater, I think, than he even did musical films. And it is just wild because it's you know it's a it's a little playful scuffle, but it's incredible hearing them sing a song and hearing the floorboards creak or hearing small things get knocked over or they're just feet bumping up against stuff. Even it's cool. The soundtrack. I was you know just sort of driving around today and listening to the soundtrack. Like you have all the studio songs, you know that were clearly you know for the album but that one even they didn't 
Really? They do it. So even on the official wow. soundtrack, it's the production track of that sequence, which is, I think, so interesting. That's like, because so I know, like, yeah, it, it, there's other cases of it, but it is, especially for a musical of this size and, you know, uh, not a very common thing. And I should point out, too, the song itself is a sort of like response to anything you can do I can do better which is in Annie get your gun mm-hmm. and so they have uh, they have their mm-hmm. very own version of it in this one right mm-hmm. but you're right Marsh though because this is where we really kind of establish the the interesting I would say very interesting relationship between Bill and calamity because you know though the film progresses and though there's suggestions of them sort of being oh well we all know as the audience that they're meant for one another like not lieutenant dan and not this katie brown that it's bill and calamity wild bill hickok and calamity jane that we're sort of building this but they have a very interesting relationship and some very interesting interactions throughout the film that also play into this weird uh, confusion about the the i think real dynamics of their their union together. Well, the whole film is like at, at one point or another in, in throughout the movie, I thought that every single character in this quadrangle was in love with each other at various points, mm-hmm. either explicitly yeah. or implicitly. And yeah, it's, it's really just like an emotional and kind of plodding mess. And it left me just being like, well, I think I know what's going on. And I have, like you said, Ryan, it's like, well, I can see she's not actually in love with Lieutenant Dan. She loves Bill, but no, she loves Katie. That's what I meant. I, I was I was only ever convinced she loved Katie. Right. I was never convinced she loved Bill either. Yeah. Because there is that scene, and it's it's a scene in which it's meant to establish that Bill and Calamity are really, you know, meant for one another and they're falling in love. And this is, you know, when they go to the big ball and both Bill and Calamity have designs on Lieutenant Dan and and Katie Brown, and they both kind of get rejected, you know, as as, they uh, see him smooching out on the balcony. Yeah, on the terrace, you know, and Calamity, of course, being Calamity Jane, gets so upset, the only thing she can think to do is grab a gun and shoot the punch the punch cup out of uh, Katie's hand, you know, and storm out. And it's an incredibly kind of violent moment. I thought Even, so, too, with the, the, the punch, like, splashing all over her face and her outfit. I mean, it looked like a effect. blood splatter. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even again, I, I mentioned I, I was watching this with my mom, with my mom, you know, and my mom, <laughs> while we were watching this, she was like, it's kind of a violent musical. If you think about it, you know, she's shooting Indians and she almost shot that poor woman. It's like, you know, now that you mention it, like there are some like violence that just sort of intrudes into these otherwise very kind of, you know, bright. You know, again, you think classic Hollywood musical, Technicolor, everything's bright and everyone's smiling, even though we're in Deadwood, one of the most violent frontier towns in the history of America. And yet, you know, here you have these just, you know, these, yeah, these moments like like uh, Takeshi Katana, where the violence just sort of comes in after mm-hmm. the slapstick comedy and stuff like that. Anyway, at the ball sequence, when this all happens, Bill then, you know, he grabs Calamity Jane. He's like, come, we got to get you out of here now. You almost shot that woman. <laughs> you know, you could have killed somebody. And he takes her out, and then he's trying to console her. And they have this really interesting conversation. You're a fake, Clam. You dress, talk, ride, and shoot like a man, but you think like a female. A green-eyed, snarling, spitting female. Katie beat you. She beat you twice, out of your man and out of the respect you used to have around here. And you helped her. And I did, too. But she didn't shoot that glass out of your hand. I did. What? You needed a lesson. Who are you to tell people who to love? Suppose you did scare that girl out of town. Would that get your lieutenant back? 
That stopped Katie from loving him or him, her. That's female thinking. He bring her back and they both hate you. You had to lose tonight, Calamity. You'd never win again. And like, that's this weird moment where I guess they're like supposed to now be like they're in love. But he's basically telling her like, you got to be more like a dude. You got to play it cool. You can't just go off the head. He's like giving her... He's giving her like romantic advice more than he's like professing his love to her. He's like, if you want to win this girl over, you can't be going off half cocked like that. No pun intended, right? But <laughs> or pun intended. <laughs> you know, anytime somebody says no pun intended, they fully intend the fucking pun. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, there's that. It's a really weird exchange, you know. And that's when, following the sequence, you know, they're they're supposedly now in love, and she's once again wearing male clothing and sings the, the the secret love song, right? My secret love. Like, she's come to to full terms with it. She's yeah. no longer thinking like a woman, right? Yeah, and of course the film plays the secret love as her formerly secret love for Bill Hickok, but it can really, at this point in 2021, it can only be read as the secret love between her and Katie Brown. And even, you know, in that sequence... She's alone. You know, it's not like she sings a love song to Howard Keel. She's in the, like, the forest or the, you know, out in the country just alone being like. Once I had a secret love that lived within the heart of me. All too soon my secret love Became impatient to be free. Dressed up like General Custer. Yeah, <laughs> dressed up like George Armstrong. I mean, Custer. all you need to do is just look at everybody's eyes throughout yes. the whole film. If you had that movie muted, you would just assume like she was falling feast. in love. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of eyes, I mean, man, you know, when I was watching this, again, just this great, you know, Technicolor musical, and I was looking at Doris Day, and it's been a while since I've watched a Doris Day movie, and I was like, man, Technicolor loves Doris Day. Like, <laughs> I can't think of bluer eyes and blonder hair. And it also struck me just on the topic of, like, Doris Day as, as a performer. Like, you know, we were, I think, mentioning this maybe before or maybe off you know, Mike, um, she's, I think, a very underrated dancer because she has that dance sequence in the film, right? The, she puts the salt on the floor, as we said, you know, sort of, again, another connection between Stormy Weather. And it's a really great dance sequence. She's, and I think throughout the film, a very agile performer. She is I mean, like she's flying around yeah. like a rag doll. Just it's like incredible. Yeah, I mean, I was like thinking of like Jackie Chan, like she's climbing up <laughs> stuff. I mean, yeah. she's jumping in and out of the windows of the wagon. I mean, it's so agile, it's so graceful. It seems so effortless. Just constantly going like up on the bar and down from the bar uh, yeah. or being like pulled up by rope or people. She's, I mean, she is just so, so dynamic. And, you know, she personally did not consider herself a very good actor. Even when she was cast in a film for the first time, like she said to the director, um, and it was actually according to, you know, again, whatever Hollywood legend, Michael Curtiz claims that he discovered mm -hmm. Doris Day as an actor. Just like Chick Bailey claims he discovered Bill Williamson in, in <laughs> right. the film, right? 
this is only a few years after her quote discovery by Hollywood and man to me she's already like just commanding the screen in this film I mean she's all over the place and that's where I wanted to bring up James Cagney and he said that she had the ability to project the simple direct statement of a simple direct idea without cluttering it and I was like thinking about it again like that's such a I mean first of all wow Cagney that's kind of deep you know but like <laughs> I think you see it in this film you know like in spite of all this that we've been talking about so many different ideas and so much crazy stuff that's sort of going on here throughout that is just her flying around effortlessly through this whole film and I think at times expressing like very deep emotions without words even you know there's some really impressive I think sequences where you see her like just struggling with what's inside of her what she's feeling and what she's thinking without that performance you know would we feel the same way like how much of this is also Doris Day's performance that's giving this to us you know I mean she dominates the film I felt you know too like and and I was fine with that except that Howard Keel really just like stands around in this movie and it was kind of bumming me out like he's <laughs> he really was, just like so he's second banana he's like the f- fifth banana and there's no two three and four yeah. you know like mm-hmm. which is like fine but i you know i love when that guy lets loose and and he does have the the higher than a hawk number when he goes off with his uh deep voice and i i loved that and he's just like singing to a painting my heart is higher than a hawk my love is deeper than a well. I'm thinking in a little while, my love and I'll be doing very well. <laughs> the background. Yeah. I was like, you want to play cards? He's like, nah. Yeah, I totally I'm agree, on a whole though. Another kick right now. I, I totally agree, though. I feel like his wild bill is even more subdued than fucking Charles Bronson's wild bill in The White Buffalo. Yeah, you know? it is. It is like the most like bland Wild Bill, without a doubt. And it's like he's just a little dull. It's like not believable. Like yeah, I mean, looks, not that anything is believable. He just like looks like musical. a guy in it. You yeah, know? at least keep the mustache, you right? Know? Or give him a wig. Give him that long Wild Bill, yeah. beautiful hair. He didn't shoot anything in the movie. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, well, no, he, he shoots he, the glass yeah. out of her hand when she thinks yeah. that Katie's going to do but it. For a man but with, that's it. For a man with 27 notches on his gun belt. Well, look, come he on, certainly you know? does no policing. He's just like walking around like a dandy throughout the whole movie. Like he's got nothing better to do than just like hang out at the bar, which was probably true. Yeah, I mean, isn't that typically the like accepted late period wild bill? Yeah, well, gambling, <laughs> playing cards, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But I guess like really like... My my biggest problem with this movie is that it has a song that slanders Chicago. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, felt the, I felt personally assaulted by the song The Windy City. I just flew in from the Windy City. The Windy City is mighty pretty, but they ain't got what we got. No siree. They got shacks up to seven stories. Never see any more than glories. What a step from our doorway. We got them for free. They've got those minstrel shows. Purdy ladies in the big chapeaus. Private lawns, public parks. For the sake of civic virtue, they've got fountains there that squirt you. 
you know, they, they never sung about New York like that in classic Hollywood movies. I guess they had a bigger audience. Yeah, you know? yeah, I felt, I, yeah, yeah. As catchy as that song is, oh, it's, it's very a, catchy. It's a very catchy. It's kind of a showstopper, really. I mean, people talk about the ballads, but you know, even if she is denigrating our fine, fine, yeah. it's uh, a love bird. it or hate it situation. I love the song, but those lyrics they should just be changed. So it's like. Uh, Chicago's really good, and Deadwood is very bad. <laughs> Deadwood could learn a lot from Chicago. Yeah, just you know? flip it. Just flip the script. Tell the truth. Calamity Jane, it's time to set the record straight. Yeah, yeah. It ain't got what we got. She didn't even go to Marshall Fields. <laughs> you know, yes, she yes. was there. She could have gotten firsthand customer service from the man who invented it. Yeah, the uh, miracle of air conditioning. I can't believe they let her into the legitimate theater in those buckskins, too, in Chicago. You would have thought the usher would have done something about that. Yeah. I think she was still wearing a gun, too. She was. <laughs> yeah, it's like a shot of her from behind in this, like, you know, master wide shot. Uh, and she's just, yeah, got her gun on and in her buckskin. This scene the... was, like, missing a, a bit where she gets sort of, like, rousted by a, a, a mean Irish immigrant cop in Chicago, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. like yeah, what, are you, what are you doing, Miss? Yeah. yeah, instead she just like sees toupees and thinks they're like scalps. Yeah, you know? <sighs> yeah. It really. I mean, like I, there was a chunk of time there where I was like, if you know, if I wasn't watching this for this, I would have definitely turned it off by this point. And I, I, I was so glad when Katie like got involved, and then they had the entire you know the woman's touch sequence. I'm like, okay, it's a film. Like, there's something yeah. here. But it was, it was. I, I mean, I thought it was like pretty grim up until that point. Um, just as like personal experience watching the film, I was. Yeah. Well, there's that really like terrible like plant and payoff where Bill, you know, when when Calamity says she's going to Chicago to bring back an actress and everyone's like, there's no way you're going to do it. Bill's like, you know, if you do it, I'll dress up like a like a Sioux uh, and then a Sioux squad like and a, I'll carry a papoose. Yeah. yeah. He uses yeah. All, the, and then, all the buzzwords. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, he pays that off in a very like uh, awkward, extended kind of comedic moment. It when... goes on forever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of regressive Hollywood movies, and not a lot of them have made me feel as, like, dirty as this movie did. Well, you know, I mean, I chose this topic uh, for <laughs> these kinds of little yeah, of discoveries. Course, you of know, course, because yeah. I specifically chose classic Hollywood, because to me, classic Hollywood musicals, I mean, you brought up the point earlier, Marsh, you know, this sort of, like, uh, progressive, regressive, uh, you know, game of, of you know, push-pull, tug-of-war that can kind of happen in these experiences where you can look at a film and find so much interesting stuff and then also kind of ah, slap your forehead and go, but then there's that, you know? like I mean, yeah, because you have to remember that, right, like Hollywood musicals were even more just like popular entertainment compared to just like an A-list Hollywood movie that was coming out. I mean, these films were designed for this crowd that would just eat that shit up, you I know? I said it before, I mean, you know, trying to contextualize it for like you know, uh, a film student today is, is trying to tell them, you know, the, the, the classic Hollywood musical. I mean, the, these things were like the Avengers of the day. I mean, it, yeah. you get the biggest yeah. performers. When the Barclays and... went on Broadway, that was like, yeah, like end game. Oh, yeah, know? dude, 100%. I mean, absolutely. And 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 to see that, that spectacle and, and to, again, understand that, you know, this wasn't some sort of, you know, a steep paramount picture or something like that or an RKO edgy kind of thing. You know, this is, you know, this was for somebody in 
in fucking bumfuck Kansas to, to watch and, and go like, wow, amazing, you know, like for everybody in America, all the, the rubes and the yokels to, to come into the theater and, and, and be, you know, whisked away right. in, into entertainment. It really does. It does feel like, do you guys remember the commercials for like Donnelly's Wild West Town? That's like an Illinois-specific thing, right? You know what I'm no, talking about? No, I don't know. Tell us. Though. I remember Santa's Village. I don't remember. It's sort of like Santa's Village, but for like a Wild West town. They still got them. You can still go. And it's like, yeah, I went as a kid. You know, you go and you like mine for gold, and there's a little saloon, a little target range. But it's like a big Wild West town. It's probably like in Naperville or something like that. Um <laughs> We should all go. That would yeah. be really. We should do a live episode. Yeah, Donnelly's Wild West Town. But, you know, the commercial would be like Donnelly's Wild West, Donnelly's Wild West Town. Do, 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 do. Nothing, not ringing <laughs> a bell. But shit. I like the song. It's yeah, a good no, song. but I was like, I was, I was thinking while watching. I'm like, this is like Donnelly's Wild West Town cinema. This movie. Well, you know, like to your point, Andy. Uh, about sort of like the audience for this movie, you know, uh, I was reminded while watching it that, you know, who was not a fan of Doris Day, James Baldwin. Uh, uh, and I remember there's a part in the Raoul Peck film where they have a quote uh, and it's more general. It's not about this film, but he says, you know, in this country, you know, there have been two levels of experience. One, to put cruelly, can be summed up in the images of Gary Cooper and Doris Day, two of the most grotesque appeals to innocence the world has ever seen. And the other, subterranean, indispensable, and denied, can be summed up, let us say, in the tone and in the face of Ray Charles. And, like, when I remembered, like, that bit, I was, like, again, and that even, you know, stormy weather, a lot of that stuff is sort of leading to Ray Charles and sort of, like, black music and gospel and blues and that stuff. So, again, you know, just thinking, like, oh, yeah, like, of course, you know, and looking at Calamity Jane and imagining James Baldwin watching it and going, like, no. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, so many classic Hollywood movies, particularly, like, stuff like this. I mean, it's, it's the... The, the grand, as you know, Deleuze says, the grand rediscovery of America over and over again, right? The discovery sure. of America. But let's be pointed to white America. You know, this yeah. is about progress for a very specific type of, quote, American, right? Again, the, the song about the take me back to the Black Hills, right? I mean, it's like... There's probably a lot of people that don't want to go back to the Black Hills, you know, and experience that again, right? Like, yeah. but not these colonizers. Certainly, they they love it, you know. Yeah, and again, I think it's interesting because, yeah, of course, these films we watched are very different, but uh, at the same time, uh, both of these films being classic Hollywood musicals, they have ultimately the same resolutions, which is marriage and uh, the show must go on or the you know our lives must go on and this kind of yeah they're they're utopia and the musical very often described as yeah this kind of like utopian form uh within genre cinema where it's it's all smiles it's all yeah i was gonna say uh, stormy weather there's not a frown to be seen in that movie it's just like giant grins the entire time there's even a recurring gag about how bill is constantly getting fired and he constantly has no money and it's played for laughs every time and in very light-hearted way like 
well, that doesn't bother me. I'm fired. That doesn't bother me. I'll just keep puffing. I'll just keep dancing, you know? I, I, I bled for the United States of America and the, the battlefields of France, and now I can't even get a goddamn job, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, but he doesn't let it get him down. It's still that, like, up, you know, upbeat sort of Hollywood attitude. And again, Calamity Jane as well, where it's like everything's played for laughs. It's all about the romance and the, uh, you know, Jane's awakening in this in this town or whatever. Uh, so yeah, they are ultimately yeah you know with those internal contradictions, they are these celebrations of two very different uh, Americas. You know? Yes, mm-hmm. and American experiences. Yeah, I mean you know they they made to me a very very interesting um, pairing. Like I was so so pleased after watching both of them in the ways that they. They sort of were in conversation with one another, you know, that that, you know, one is seemingly totally oblivious to the sufferings of anyone that wasn't, you know, a white person with a gun and another, which is sort of saying, take nothing for granted, you know, as you build a life in America, like as you work to again, in that ontological sense, like to simply be, to simply exist and to exist with pride and to exist with with joy Right. And that's why, again, stormy weather is of the two, like a far more joyous experience, a far more celebratory experience, regardless of, you know, the, the, the many problematic depictions of race that we've discussed. But but in spite of all that, that's still this celebration of, you know, the black experience and black identity at a very, you know, at a, at a period where you just didn't have that in in american mainstream entertainment and yeah i mean it's like the peak of movies the 40 the early you know the first half of the 40s it's like the highest attendance in the history of cinema that'll never be topped or whatever um so yeah it's like fucking huge deal one yeah one thing i wanted to mention is the way that these films sort of track like the the change in the musical a little bit because Calamity Jane is you know an integrated musical right as they call them again not to yeah confuse the issue with integration and segregation and race but uh, the integrated musical being the musical that uh, the songs intersect with the plot and character elements and that was very much like the change from the early 30s ultimately through to the 50s was the backstage musical ultimately shifting to the more sort of like Gene Kelly and Astaire sort of 50s period integrated musicals where people are just, you know, dancing down the street. They're singing in the rain. They're, you know, uh, being Americans in Paris and they're just like dancing on the sidewalk. Uh, Whereas, yeah, Stormy Weather is still almost like confined almost exclusively to that sort of like backstage world we're watching performers we're watching musicians uh, and it's like in that context we experience the songs um which is like yeah it almost feels like just a series of like sick music videos basically <laughs> like strung together with like you know a sketch in between and then it's like these you know because the songs the variety musical yeah and they like kind of factor into the plot like stormy weather the titular song which we of course should say obviously is like iconic lena horn like kills it and that comes at the moment where like her and bill's relationship is in doubt
sort of like isolated just like hey check out this kind of music and this guy like isn't this fucking awesome like yeah, they're, they're really just like <laughs> emotional reverberations yes. as opposed to any like literal connection to the stories because it is they're all performances and there's all that attention drawn to that fact you know everyone's watching them while in calamity jane it just reality she's seems on to top bend. of the stage coach, yeah. so you know singing <laughs> And the way, again, in choosing the topic and, and giving you the parameters of, of not just saying, a, you know, a musical, but specifically like a classic Hollywood musical, the way that that would further change following, you know, the, the demise of classic Hollywood, right, or whatever, the, the transition to a post-classical Hollywood, you know, when you think of films like um, Cabaret, you know, and their approach in, in, again, sort of going away from this integrated musical to once again, the almost diegetic, right? I guess you could say musical numbers, right? They're, they're, they're songs happening within the world, right? Like the musical numbers in Cabaret are musical numbers that are happening on a stage that we're watching. We are the audience once again. It's a little more, yeah, like realistic mode versus the more like fantasy mode of the integrated musical. Yeah, and even just also other musicals, you know, like we were talking about, uh, you know, last week when, when I announced the topic and then we were going on about, you know, Paint Your Wagon, right? Yeah. And you think about, like, Paint Your Wagon's, de- even Paint Your Wagon's depiction of the West, right? It's far more dirty, it's messy, it's muddy, it's cold, it's gross. I mean, uh, Paint Your Wagon looks like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, yes, right? compared Com- to Calamity Jane. Right, I mean, you know, and it, it's just, it's like sad, and it's it's a, a shitty place to exist, you know? Whereas this, it's like, who wouldn't want to be in Deadwood? <laughs> like, fucking Deadwood, I mean, right? Compare this to, like, the pilot episode of Deadwood or whatever, right? I know yeah. you're a big Deadwood fan. Yeah, as Al Swearingen says, uh, can be combative. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is like Miller the the Swearingen of Yeah, Calamity or he's Jane? yeah, or he's Cy Tolliver, the Powers Booth character. He's more of a Cy Tolliver. He, well yeah. that's yeah, he he does have more of a, a Cy Tolliver vibe than a Swearingen vibe. I thought that too. Everything ahead is gone. Stormy weather since my man and I together keeps raining all the time keeps raining all the time so yeah these were the musicals that that we picked andy what are you know as the topic chooser what are some of your favorite movie musicals it's nice to know that you watch calamity jane with your mom i imagine you probably watch a lot of musicals with your mom no growing up yeah i mean my dad and mom loved musicals so i was exposed to them at a very early age like my earliest memories of like movies um as a child are are musicals and my dad sneaking me into the theaters to see die hard 2 i think that was like my first 
No, my a, first not a musical. Not a musical, right? But my first actual my first movie that I ever saw in a theater that I can remember was Who's Afraid of Roger? Or not Who's Afraid? Who's Afraid of Roger Rabbit? I'm thinking Who's <laughs> Afraid, afraid of, of Roger Rabbit? Yeah, that's that's a great fucking movie. No, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? That's my first movie that I can remember seeing in a theater. But but yeah, it was musicals at home. We'd all sit around and we'd watch them and we'd sing them and then you know, it got me into musical theater at a very early age. I was doing Elmer's Children's Theater and stuff like that. First show I was in was Annie, Elmer's Children's Theater. But, um, yeah, so growing up, I mean, like, some others from this particular period that I really, really liked growing up. I, I'm a big fan of it's so corny and, you know, there's issues with it, but I loved High Society. I don't know if either of you have seen that with... Bing Crosby and Sinatra. It's the musical remake of the Philadelphia story. Oh, if you've never seen that, but it's yeah. got uh, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly, and, and Louis Armstrong also is, is in high society. I mean, seven brides for seven brothers was a big one in our house. Kiss Keel me. power. Yeah. Kiss, kiss me, Kate. That's why, again, when we picked the topic, I said like real Howard Keel hours, you know, like, <laughs> and sure enough, we get a Howard Keel musical. So, yep. I love I love so many of them. I mean, I love all the Gene Kelly stuff. Uh, you know, one that I just saw for the first time in recent years, again, because of my father, was, I've talked to you about it several times, It's Always Fair Weather, which is, I think, one of the, the best depictions of, like, male bonding and friendship I've seen in a classic Hollywood film. I mean, it's a really touching film about about having pals and growing up and growing distant from one another. And it's got some really great uh, songs and dances and musical sequences in there. So we're all about pals on the gauntlet. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. And that's entertainment. That is the gauntlet is the gauntlet (laughs) is also entertainment. Please rate us uh, the maximum amount of stars on any uh, place you can. Yeah. If you're entertained. You know, if you're entertained, you should be entertained. Come on. Um, All right. So this was my topic. Uh, Now I got to throw it back out. Ryan, what are we up with next? What do we got next? Well, for our listeners out there, another way that uh, or another reason to give us a really high rating is it could be a, a wedding gift for me because I'm about to get married and that, as I mentioned, I'm heading out to uh, we're passing through Deadwood. It's certainly not the destination of our wedding. Um, it's you know very contested history out in the Black Hills, and we'll be hyper conscious of that as we pass through. However, we are going on a honeymoon, and I so I thought, oh well, to gear up and get ready for the honeymoon, how about a how about a couple of honeymoon films um, to set us on our way as we you know drive around the country a little bit. Uh, so yeah, honeymoon honeymooners, show me what you got. Well, congratulations. And Congrats, buddy. Yeah, very, very excited to celebrate with you in this podcast and outside of it. And we'll be humming uh, the Deadwood stage all through your honeymoon, I hope. <laughs> yeah, we'll play the Deadwood stage when we drive in, but we're definitely not going to play the Take Me Back to the Black Hills track. Yeah. <laughs> Some things are better left in uh, the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies. You can send us an email. You know, give us suggestions of uh, you know topics you want to hear about on the podcast, and you can do that at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at Gmail 
Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Yeah, hell yeah. Thanks, everyone. Everybody dance. Jump to the rock and jump to the sun.